and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. If you're listening to this podcast, like me, you're probably a bit of a fan of science fiction. And one of my favorite things to discover is a new series, especially if there are multiple books in the series or if the series has turned into a TV show. And so I was delighted to discover Silo when it was first advertised to me as I was watching something else on Apple TV. And I thought, huh, that looks kind of interesting. And after the first episode, I was hooked. So imagine my delight when I got pitched with the opportunity to interview the author and executive producer, Hugh Howie. If you haven't watched the show or seen the advertisements, let me just tell you, it's about a society of humans in a dystopic future that live underground. And while sometimes I get turned off by science fiction in which the emphasis is on the technology and on the different aspects of the world in which people live in without any thought to the influence that we'll have on human behavior, Silo is the opposite. Silo takes a deep dive into the minds of people who are stuck in this place and they don't know why. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Silo's executive producer and the author of the Wool series, Hugh Howie. Hugh Howie, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks, Andre. Appreciate you having me. So um, you wrote a blog post about uh, mosquitoes and insoles, yeah. <laughs> which made me laugh out loud. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I actually wanted to start there because I think that a lot of the ideas that you talk about in that blog post have informed the way now I think about Silo and the show, for better or for worse, in terms of like whether it's accurate. But why don't you give us, you know, we've actually talked on the show before about the gene drive approach to getting rid of huma humanity's uh, biggest killer, the mosquito. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of what, you know, how you use the analogy of the mosquito gene drive to help explain population growth or decline? Well, I, I'm really fascinated by the coming population decline because it's something that we've never dealt with as a species. You know, we've always dealt with growth, which comes with a lot of problems. And decline will come with different problems that we've never really seen before. We're seeing the whispers of them now in some of the countries that are dealing with this and how um, cities and villages are emptying. I was just in Japan where uh, a train service um, shut down. It was running only because one child was still using the train to go to school. And once that they just kept the train running until that kid graduated, and then they shut the train service down. And there's all kinds of incentive packages being put out there to encourage people to have kids, which is a huge shift from when I was younger and people were trying to figure out how to slow down population growth. And yeah, I think this is, I think people choosing not to have kids is um, going to be really good for the environment, but a, a huge challenge for us to face. And there's, it's not clear yet whether it's an existential threat or whether there'll be some sort of balance in between. But uh, 
the blog post was about the uh, proliferation of AI chatbots and how I think this is going to encourage fewer people to date and have uh, meaningful human connections and relationships like what we're seeing in Japan where um, people are just choosing not to uh, date at all. You know, they'll go to a like cuddle club and pay someone to like snuggle them for half an hour instead of, uh, I, I put this in quotes because I'm in a wonderful relationship that I love, but the idea of putting up with another person is too much for some people. And we're, we're creating automatons that kind of fill some of those um, those emotional needs without providing the evolutionary benefit of offspring. And that could be what the, you know, putting the um, drone mosquitoes into the wild um, does for lowering mosquito populations. And I, I think like, you know, only an exceptional science fiction author could see all these threads and pull them all together in the way that you did, you know, from just the, the fact that the mosquitoes don't know that they're, you know, that their population is now in stark decline if they're, you know, the the victims of a gene drive, right? They just go out and have sex and, you know, they just, don't, they don't, they don't know any better. Just like, you know, in some ways there are a lot of people who are human beings who, you know, yeah, and as you say, are making the decision not to have children in order to protect the environment, but also for other reasons. Uh, and it's a kind of morally defensible position to say, you know, I'm choosing not to add to the problems of climate change and environmental, you know, waste by not having kids, right? And yet it is true that if everybody made that decision, there there would be a lot of services that people wouldn't have and and life would would as you as you kind of describe it later on in the blog post would look very different. You'd have these like pockets of you know, if the population of of the world went down to under a billion, you'd have these pockets of people living much more you know, with 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 many more fewer services, et cetera, um, and it would look different. Yeah, and it could create. You know, we've we've had an upward spiral with population growth of productivity and wealth, and um, getting people uh, educated and out of poverty and all kinds of benefits. And it's unclear what a population decline might do, but it could start a, a downward spiral where we go back to where we you know came from and become very and and maybe it oscillates between those two extremes. I'm really motivated by Fermi's paradox. You know, I think it's fascinating that we don't see evidence of other intelligent life having scanned the, the sky for, um, you know, decades. My, my entire life, we've been looking very closely for any kind of radio signal, any kind of sign of advanced technology. And we, we could be the first, which is unlikely, but someone has to be the first. Um, but uh, there are other solutions to Fermi's paradox, which is that whatever gets you technology also results in your extinction. Uh, it was actually one of that question that led to the plot of, of Wool, which became the TV show Silo. I was really trying to figure out, okay, what are some of the ways we could go extinct? Because I don't think it's as easy to imagine as the plethora of post-apocalyptic stories that we have. You know, we like write environmental collapse and then all humans are extinct, which is so unrealistic. There'd be so many niches that would thrive with different kinds of environmental change and even nuclear holocaust couldn't do it so it's difficult to come up with a, a way that we could all go extinct but all of us becoming so distracted with other things we could do with our time that none of us are raising families is definitely one of them 
And in you know, interestingly, it, you know, in the TV show, the runner up to mayor is the guy who runs IT. <laughs> Which I thought was really interesting. (laughs) And the mayor, of course, is the person that, you know, runs everything. Um, So, okay. So uh, for people who haven't seen it yet, Silo is about a community of about 10,000 human beings. Um, When the show begins, you don't know why they are living in the silo. In fact, they explicitly in the first words of the show tell you that they they themselves don't know why. Uh, They just know that that's how it is. And they can't leave this silo, this, you know, 140 floor underground burrow. And so I wondered when you were writing, when you were conceptualizing this whole idea, did you have in mind an apocalyptic event and then kind of go backwards from there? Or did you start with just the premise of here's this isolated community and what is it going to be like? Yeah, I had an an event in mind. I wasn't sure if I would ever get to it, but it's, you know, when you, when you spend a lot of time writing a story, you spend way more time outside of the writing process thinking about the story. You know, while you're while I was at work, I was working a day job at the time at a bookstore. And you're not just writing in your head, you're thinking about the world of your characters in your spare time. And even when I wrote the very first short story, I just wanted some idea, okay, where and when and why are these people here? And there were a few things I was fascinated with at the time. I don't know if I should mention what the thing that wiped everybody out is because it's probably a good spoiler if we get enough seasons to tell the whole thing. But I, I can't I did come up with what I thought was um a reasonable way that humanity could get wiped out and how we would respond to that. And in my imagination, the silo and the people living there is the answer to that to that threat. You know, I'm glad to hear that there is an idea there because there was a part of me that was a little bit worried that it was like one of these shows that isn't going to end satisfyingly even after 17 seasons because they didn't think through that part. Um, Because, of course, to me, one of the fascinating things about the show is that because no one knows in the silo what happened, there's also this question of did anything happen or are these people just like, you know, powering the way the Matrix, uh, you know, set us up to think that we could just power AI somehow. They're like generating something that, you know, some other being is then exploiting. And so there's, there's just so many psychological games, even in the first episode of like, I guess we should spoil just a little bit. Like what about the cleaning? Because I think that's like, sure. that comes up pretty quick. Yeah. Okay, so it's like right, right out the bat. Yep. Yeah. So like if you're in the silo and you say the words, I want to get out, that immediately gets you out. Like <laughs> they, there's no going back from that. It's kind of a, a, a suicidal statement to make. It's a suicidal act. Because what happens is they put you into this like spacesuit and they send you out of the silo. And um, anybody who's in the silo can only see the outside world through these sensors, these cameras on some part of the silo outside. And uh, they get dusty over time because nobody goes out. And so uh, so anybody who, who who says this and then wants to go out is is given the opportunity to clean off the camera. And uh, and everyone's like, well, why would anybody, you know, why do people clean? Like, they don't mean people who are inside, they don't understand, like, why the person would choose to do this, even though they've been kind of ostracized and, you know, potentially sent to their death by by being sent out to clean. I don't know. There's all these layers in here. And then, you know, of course, the question is like, well, so why are they cleaning? Are they cleaning to show that there's, you know, the people who are inside that there's a better world out there and everybody should go out? Um, but then, you know, we see there's other consequences too. So, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to just ask your 
thoughts about sort of the the way that you you position the story is very much about this psychological experience of being siloed and not knowing your history, not knowing why and not necessarily trusting the society. And yet you've created this pretty unique society. Like there's obviously a lot of thought put into the hierarchies. You know, how do you keep people behaving well? <laughs> um the, the caste system, like the fact that people that are in mechanical, which is a lower layers, are sort of, you know, frowned upon by the uptoppers who live at the top. Um, so, yeah, tell us about, like, your approach to choosing to make this really a psychological thriller rather than a kind of painting of a dystopia with all of the details that you could have had in, in, in that way. It's, um, you know, my main reading is in psychology and uh, philosophy, just trying to understand, you know, the human condition, you know, to understand myself and my interaction with people around me. Um, a whole lot of uh, my own ruminations over the years went into this one story. For instance, the, um, the uprising that was 140 years ago, I grew up in the South and was just surrounded by stories about the Civil War that I had to like get into high school before I realized they were false stories that the biases of my geographical uh, location had kind of painted a false picture. And, and it made me realize like how little, how, how much we can change about our shared history in just 140 years. So, you know, around year 2000, when I was thinking of a lot of this stuff, uh, that's how far we removed we were from the civil war, which it's shocking how little we know about day-to-day life, even though we have really good contemporary accounts, letters, um, and then we have people who are alive and well into the 20th century, um, who uh, recordings and videos and you know amazing accounts. But all that history kind of is is dead just because of generations being gone. And so you see a lot of comments about the book over the years about why would they forget all this 140 years. And to me, it seems pretty obvious. Like we just don't aren't interested in our histories, and that was kind of one of the the metaphors baked in. The, the caste system um, came because I just started. Uh, uh, I got out of a, a a career of working on yachts, where the way the boats are laid out in these layers. I mean, the very bottom layer is the bilge, and it's just full of like terrible smells and you know brackish water sloshing around, and all the pumps and wires and machinery and one level above that's where the crew quarters are and where people like myself had to stay and the level above that's where the guests got to stay and if you keep going to the very top you find the owner laying on a sunbed drinking a cocktail that was like served to him or her and so this stratification on the boat very much mirrored our metaphorical um, stratification of society and yeah i found something like really kind of absurd and, and humorous about that, like how literal things are laid out. I mean, we value height and getting, you know, the, the ability to survey our surroundings. You know, King of the Hill is like one of the first games I learned to play when I was a little kid. So uh, it was really easy to create this like layered society where your cast followed your physical location. I was seeing very similar things. I mean, people live in penthouses. The um, the corner office, you know, there's all these uh, things baked into society that follow the, the same system as the silo. And I want 
talk a little bit about um, the IT department. And, uh, you know, there's this much ado about the IT, head of IT being really revered, like, you know, it's going to be the next mayor. And yet we don't, at least in those first few episodes, see a lot of evidence of people using technology. Like there's not like people are on their phones or, you know, watching screens all the time, which could have been a choice you could have made, right? If, if we're if we're stuck in the ground, like, do we just sit in, in a constant virtual reality entertaining ourselves by, you know, walking around? I think other people who, who, who would have written this book or these series of books would have just put people in VR goggles and or had like VR parks and things like that. But you don't do any of that. Instead, you, you've you chosen even some of the elements within the IT department are very retro. Like I just I love the look. And I don't know if you thought about this. This was a came with the TV show or with the designer. But I love the fact that like, you know, the desks are like the ones that you see from the 60s where they're like heavy metallic, like everything just like fits that aesthetic of like this is going to be around forever. It's durable. You know, it's very retro. Well, that is very deliberate. It's in the the books as well. That the the tech to me it was kind of inspired by the Panama Canal technology. You know, we built this thing that just kept working for you know decades without needing to be uh, refitted until quite recently, because it was very simple tech and it was built to be robust and to not fail and to have backups on backups. And it's how the military and government like build things where. If you've seen like the laptops, the late the latest and greatest laptop that's rated for like military spec looks like it's from 20 years ago because it's thicker and bulky and blocky and they look weird. But you know, the the technology is quite advanced where if you drop the thing, the hard drive parts itself, you know, before it crashes. So building for robustness is very different than building for consumer grade. And that might be a hint as to who who built this and why. And hopefully you know, these kinds of visual clues are there to make things make sense once you find out answers. Um, but it's very deliberate. It's not just a, an aesthetic choice. It's a um, practical result of answers that um, will eventually come in the show. And there's another thing that I noticed too, and it's very clear to me uh, in the opening credits with the the, the music, and um, which, by the way, I felt to me was was uh, it, it reminds me a lot of Westworld. I don't know if that if that's this anyway, but if that was deliberate or that was just a coincidence, but. Um, there, you know, as you see the silo uh, in the in the kind of art of those opening credits, uh, a lot of it looks like DNA, right? There's like a double helix structure, et cetera. And yet um, within the show, there isn't this sense that they have, um, you know, that, that the medicine is so far advanced, you know, in that way, too, which which is another kind of often when you when people write novels about the future, they write about like how we've solved you know, the problem of our biology. So can you talk a little bit about the sort of, you know, this, the, the analogy of, of the structure of DNA and the silo, and then um, your approach to what people's physical health and medicine looks like in that space? Yeah, it's definitely deliberate. It's um, also in the books that this central staircase is like this, um, the strand of, of DNA. Um, I think the best clue I could give here is that anything that seems like it doesn't make sense is a hint as to what happened to the world and the people behind the creation of the silo. So if there's something that it seems like, why aren't they more interested in this or why did they not know about this? Maybe that is 
leads people to what destroyed the earth um, if the earth is destroyed and why you wouldn't want people delving in those things again. So there, um, even a small hint in the second, in the first episode when Allison is looking at the back of a hard drive with a magnifying glass and she's like, do you have anything more powerful? And George tells her that's as powerful as it gets. Um, you're actually not allowed to have magnification greater than that. Um, oh, interesting. It's against the rules. Um, huh. And uh, that's a hint that maybe the, there's a distrust of people being able to see the very small. Hmm. Um, and so all these things that I, I love watching the speculation, like why is there no elevator and uh, all these other things. Every one of those is derived from the answer of what happened. And once you have that answer, all these things click into place and make sense, which I think has been satisfying for readers over the years. And and it doesn't all come at once. Like when you read the the books, it, it's doled out a little bit at a time. And we're going to try to do the same with the, uh, the TV show and make sure that ends of episodes will tell you either something about a character or about the world they live in. And that the end of seasons will peel back one whole layer of this onion and show you that there's way more underneath. And that's that to me is the joy of writing in a serialized fashion and telling a serialized story on TV is that you get to keep having small um, endings within a larger framework. And it's not that common, at least historically, for the writer of the story to be the executive producer of the show. So can you tell us how like how you made this shift from in the books where you essentially stick to one character um, and tell the story of one character? And so over the course of, of several books, you can piece the story together, but you've got these different voices versus making the choice that now for the television show, you know, we're not we're not really doing that. Right. At least so far, it's been, you know, you kind of have this more of an omniscient view uh, of, of all these different characters. It's not, I, I don't think that we are being overly biased by one character's experience in each episode. How did you make those choices? We followed, so the first, the first book uh, was the shortest. It started with just a 50 page short story and we bounced between Holston and Allison, but mostly from Holston's point of view. And uh, the first episode is kind of a recreation of that short story. And the, the next book follows um, Johns and Marnes as they go down to meet Juliet. And you don't really meet Juliet until the end of that second story. So you just follow this one point of view. We already had um, to convince people, hey, let us hire Rebecca Ferguson, like this like really ascendant movie star who's in Mission Impossible and Dune and all the big franchises. Let's get her for TV, which is so hard to do. Yeah. And then let and then let's not show her for the first two episodes, even yeah, though I mean I know, her I know. All over the posters. So we couldn't <laughs> we, we couldn't get away with all of what, what we could have done to hew, you know, directly to the books. But Apple, to their credit, and, and AMC was a big part of the storytelling bones of this um, series, they were on board with telling Holston and Alice's story as long as we intro Juliet at the very end, which is what we do. We just show, like, well, what happened down there? What what led you to this? 
and then we show um you know the kind of the hero shot of her at the end of that episode so we're you and i are only talking about things up through the first four episodes which is what's been out so far so spoilers for that if you're listening uh but then we with the second episode we had to bring Juliet forward get Rebecca on the screen and mix in the plot of book two which is Marnes and and John's going down to meet her and that takes place over the next two episodes really um but from here forward I think it's clear in episode four that this is mostly going to be uh Juliet's story but just like in the books we're going to be bouncing between her and her friends in mechanical because her role and her actions at the very top of the silo are going to reverberate throughout the entire silo. And that's to me, what gets really exciting is when this person who didn't even want this job starts to tug on this one string and everything starts to unravel. And it's a, it's a psychological unraveling. It's a character piece, but it's got so many mysteries and twists and turns that I think it satisfies on that, that kind of thriller level as well. Because you're interested in, or you, you know, you've done a lot of reading in psychology, I wanted to ask you how your creative work differs when you know that you're writing for people who are going to read it uh, versus you're crafting something that they're going to watch. And let me just preface this by saying, you know, I'm, uh, I, you know, I, I see a lot of benefits of reading, uh, especially for kids, because we know that it helps them develop imagination, it helps them develop empathy, it also helps them kind of uh, develop the muscle of thinking and knowing themselves, uh, because they can go and put themselves into other characters. And, you know, people keep saying the book is dead. And then, you know, yet another Harry Potter comes along. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Right. There's like, book, right, book's still book, pretty book's good right dead. now. But yeah. from an author's perspective, I wonder if you could tell us whether you have strategies that are very different and overt. Maybe they're more subtle and something that you just do because you know how to do your craft well. Uh, but if there are things that you are like, okay, well, this is for television. We need to, you know, we need to do X, Y, and Z in terms of how we tell the story versus how I've been telling it uh, in the book. Yeah. the I, I love your point about, um, the value of reading, I think the the thing that it does the best for us is um, help us practice empathy. Because when we're reading a book, even if it's in third person, um, a, a well-written third person story really puts you in the mind of the character. And since you can't see the character, you become, become the character. And you feel, you know, if it's well-written, you're feeling what they feel, you see what they see, the smells, the emotional reactions, their thoughts become your thoughts. And you can't replicate that in film and TV because you can see that person and it's not you. It doesn't look anything like you and you're seeing it from the outside. But when you're reading, you're sensing everything from the inside. I think books occupy a very unique space in entertainment that maybe VR is the closest thing we could get to taking the place of. Um, but when you go from writing a story like Wool, which was very psychological, very much a lot of people's thoughts and theories going on in their own minds and translate that into uh, a visual form, you can't show what people are thinking. So you have to rely on your actors to emote and show through their craft what they're going through. So for instance, in the books, um, Juliet is uh, 
not nearly as cantankerous as the Juliet of the TV show because her mind is unraveling and she's, you know, dealing with these deep uh, concerns internally. And we read about them and we feel them and we know them. But when we're showing her on the screen, we have to have her embody those kinds of same dark thoughts. And it's a completely different uh, set of tools. Um, I think, and the other thing is like uncovering a mystery. You can't have someone sitting at a computer screen uncovering a mystery. You can do that in a book. It works great. You know, they're reading letters. They're reading because the person holding the book is also reading. So you're, you're transmitting the, the mystery in a medium that they understand. But uh, that's the most boring thing in the world uh, to see on screen. So we have to figure out how to make things physical. Um, but these are all challenges that, you know, you get to play with in a room full of creative people and you toss out ideas and you figure out how we're going to make this visually interesting. And it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy that collaborative storytelling. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, challenge to now put those thoughts into actions, which of course is what actors train so long to do is how do we how do you show somebody what your motivations are just by what you're doing without, you know, overdoing it or underdoing it. Uh, there is a lot in the storyline about trust and belief and who's trusting who and the, what these rules are. And so I, I wonder if you have thoughts about the importance of rules in a society versus free thinking versus knowledge, because there's, you know, there's there's a lot of, you know, people talk about how they don't know why they're here and they're just going to accept that. Uh, what do you think is the role of understanding and knowledge in our society and you know maybe that'll get us into generative AI and these new chatbots and how that might be changing how people trust authority and and sort of where they're getting their information. Knowledge plays a huge part of the the story. Um, when Allison is cutting uh, the birth control out of her leg, the knife is sitting on a plate with an apple, and the metaphor there is like she's getting knowledge and getting truth about this, the world that she lives in, and it is, um, she's probably better off not having it. You know, it's like, it's going to lead to her exile and, and what appears to be her death. And the same, you know, with the mythology of Eden, even though it wouldn't have been an apple, but it's become an apple and, and our retelling of it that, uh, and Pandora's box and other, uh, there's many different myths of this that like humans are curious and that curiosity gets us in trouble. Um, so that's a big part of of the story, and it's a big part of the what the the builders of the silo would have seen as a threat to humanity is our innate curiosity. And I think that's not a spoiler because uh, in the first episode, Allison has this person approach her and say, "You know, you're not the kind of person they want having kids." That's right. Um, yeah, because she's the kind of person who asks questions, and so you mm -hmm. see that. There seems to be a, a selective breeding process going on here, where if they're choosing who can have kids, look in look in the story and see who doesn't have kids. Well, those those are the threats to to somebody, to others of us. Those are the heroes, you know, uh, people who still have the the hope that the world could be a better place and the optimism and the curiosity and drive to get us there. So. All of those factors play a huge part, not just in my thinking, but in the plot of the and the world building. Uh, uh, and 
you know, I wrote this before we knew about um, Snowden and the CIA keeping information from all of our digital communications. Like this was, that was the subject of conspiracy theories. But uh, that's a big part of why IT is in charge. Like they're the ones who have all that data. And, you know, this was written 12 years ago before people cared about like their what's on social media and, and how they're advertising uh, cookies and stuff are being used against them. So yeah, this is all very like contemporary problems I'm kind of wrestling with and getting to put into the story, which is the best part of writing science fiction, I think. And also probably an exciting thing about being able to make a television show, you can maybe insert things into the TV series that you couldn't have predicted 12 years ago as you were writing the the, the books. Um, so you know, I, I want to kind of get back, though, to your your thoughts. You know, a lot of people mention that um, science fiction writers are prescient, that they can, that they, that some of them, the good ones, have an ability to sort of predict the future. And some of them have been quite right. You know, we've got a lot of evidence of 1984-like, uh, you know, behaviors today. You know, you can, we can look to the past. Some people, you know, obviously some of them get some aspects wrong, but, you know, Margaret Atwood has become a massive star, even though what she wrote was several decades ago. I read it in high school uh, and, you know, here we are uh, living much uh, of, of what she wrote. So I want to specifically, I mean, I can't ask you to predict the future. Uh, that seems like too big a task, but especially as you, you know, with this, with this new generative AI, these, these tools, these, can you, is there something that you see that is different in 2023 that would either influence the way you would write your next science fiction books or uh, that you think that we as a species need to be mindful of? Yeah, I, I think the, the examples you bring up uh, 1984 and Handmaid's Tale are wonderful examples of how um, speculative fiction authors can nail the future, I think it happens most often when they're writing about people and human behavior, which is what, you know, when we talk about Orwellian thought or when we talk about The Handmaid's Tale and, you know, current um, issues with reproductive rights, these are human behaviors which seem to be uh, repeated throughout history. So it's really easy to tell those stories about contemporary issues and have them be uh, germane in the future. Science fiction authors are notoriously terrible about predicting technological change. Um, I, like the one really solid example that I've seen is um, geostationary satellites were in a Arthur C. Clarke or an Asimov story, and so he, knowing you know some basic uh, gravitational theory, was able to posit something in a story that ended up being useful in science. Would have been co-discovered anyway. But most of most of science fiction books are just dead wrong about everything technological. The worst thing you can do is put a year in the title of your book because science fiction authors like greatly overestimate the progress of change uh, in, in a lot of areas, and then underestimate change in in different areas. Like you know, smartphones just aren't a thing in old science fiction stories. The Star Trek communicators are primitive compared to uh, modern smartphones. You had to, you know, your communicator was good for kind of one thing, but you had to go have a the med scanner and you had to go go to the computer and do other stuff. And now we know that their one handheld device would do it all. So I think we shouldn't give science fiction authors much credit in when it comes to technology, but we should 
give really smart observers of human behavior a lot of credit when they write it well in the case of Atwood and Orwell and a, a ton of others. Um, and I, I fall more in the realm of the dystopian writers who are writing about human behavior. So if I were to predict things about the future, it would be that we would act very much like we act now and in the past in the future. So uh, I want to let our listeners know that Hugh Howey's series, Wool, uh, among his other novels, is available for booksellers everywhere. And Silo is on Apple TV+. Plus. Thank you so much for coming on Inquiring Minds. And uh, I'm looking forward to the next few episodes and hopefully many more seasons and you wrapping it up in a very satisfying way. Thank you so much. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyla Rahala, Michael Galgul, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale Master, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, and I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. <laughs>